0: Well, first of all, thank you all very much for coming. It's good to see so many familiar as well as uh, new faces. Um, Liam, um, my co-editor, can't be here tonight as he's now based in New Zealand. But in the time-honored tradition of overseas celebrities unable to attend British ceremonies, he has sent along the water cooler in his place. However, I'm assured by Faber that tonight's event has been broadcast live to New Zealand, so hello, New Zealand. <laughs> this event also functions as a kind of smuggled in semi-launch for the good of the novel. So before introducing the distinguished panel that I've flown in at great personal expense, I'd like to say a bit about what this book does, and thanks all the people who made it tonight possible. Um, without the support from the outset of Lee Braxton, editorial director at Faber, <laughs> we wouldn't be here tonight. Um, my day job is as academic literature editor at Cambridge University Press. A perennially irritating part of that job is standing at uh, launches and hearing speeches which thank me for my patience. This usually means the book was extremely late and I should have sacked the author years ago. Instead, I smile politely and insist on how moved I am to be listening to the acknowledgements after the author is Budgie or Goldfish. So in that same excruciating spirit and with an awful sense of inevitability, I want to thank Lee for his patience with this project. (laughs) Um, Lee recruited the book uh, for Faber at an early stage. Many of the contributors and novels included in it are attached to Faber. He's a palpable presence throughout. I also want to thank Alex Holroyd for our energy and efficiency in organizing tonight's events and many other events associated with the book, and um, thank the LRB Bookshop staff for welcoming us to this beautiful bibliographical space. When we started this uh, project, Tessa Hadley, who's here tonight, was a distinguished novelist with a recent CUP monograph. Now, she is a very distinguished novelist with a CUP monograph that is strangely never mentioned in her many glowing profiles. <laughs> Benjamin Markovitz was an aspiring novelist. Now he's author of three distinguished and successful novels. So to Ben and Tessa, to James Wood, and and Frances Wilson, thank you all very much for being part of the project and for your patience. The book is distinguished by your presence and contributions. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I knew this project was in good hands at Faber uh, when I saw an early proof of the jacket. This wasn't the Godfather 2 chic that you currently see before you, but a list of all the contributors' names set against book spines. All the names were elegantly arranged down the page, all listed carefully. All names, that is, except one. One solitary name had been excluded. One name. It took two phone calls from my parents, <laughs> a letter from our parish priest, and a week long protest camping outside the favourite headquarters before they agreed to reinsert my name. In a Groucho Marx way, the whole episode was immensely reassuring about the kind of club I was trying to join. But during that week camping outside the favourite headquarters, I use that word in its traditional Norfolk Coast context, during that week camping outside the favourite headquarters, I'm successfully competing with the big issue seller by offering five Cambridge hardbacks for a pound, <laughs> I had time to reflect on the good of novel. And during those cold, hungry nights on the pavement, my mind recalls some memorable publishing lunches. One such was in New York with Dennis Donoghue. Now, Dennis is Irish. He is 6 foot 6. He is the Henry James Professor of English and American Literature at NYU. He is father of Emma Donoghue. He is a critic of great power, tact, and precision. Over lunch, I asked him what he thought of the most recent book by a prominent Irish writer. Dennis threw himself back in his chair, lifted both hands behind his head, and with a huge grin said, Absolutely fucking crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Two weeks later in Cambridge, I asked my friend and colleague John Kerrigan what he thought of the same book. John is English. He is Grace Professor of Renaissance Literature at Cambridge University. He is a critic, a great power, tact, precision. (laughs) John paused. He looked into the distance. He finally leant in close and said, tangential. (laughs) 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 Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, somewhere between the Irish man in New York's absolutely fucking crazy and the English man in Cambridge's tangential, there lies a workable critical vocabulary that can show what the good of a novel is and where it resides. And that's what we try to do here, show, not tell. The novel has what scientists call a high signal-to-noise ratio. Signal-to-noise ratio compares the level of a desired signal to the level of background noise. The higher the ratio, the less obtrusive the background noise. To read a novel is to be inevitably exposed to intrusive noise which must be distilled to enable the novel's signal to emerge. Reading a novel, then, is always an act of forgetting. All these sentences reel by, unremembered and unmourned, tumbling down into an inert, percussive pile, somehow essential to the novel's signal, but yet part of a novel's disposable noise. To read a novel, then, is to be sentenced to a kind of continuous littering death. So, as readers of thousands of unremembered and unworn sentences each year, we wanted to ask where and when the good of the novel resides. And by good, we meant primarily, though not exclusively, technique. And by novel, we mean books that do what only the novel can do. We wanted to ask what novelistic knowledge looks like. What kinds of truth can a novel tell? And how does a particular novel uh, exemplify this? We wanted critics who could show and not tell. So a banning order was issued on footnotes, which, characteristically, only the Cambridge University press author, Tessa Hadley, managed to evade. <laughs> Every Friday night at Oxford, on the way back from the King's Arms, a friend of mine used to ritualistically spit on the walls of the history faculty library. <laughs> he denounced historians as mere bean counters, Rather akin to the way Eric Cantona branded his French national teammate, Didier Deschamps a mere water carrier. Historians, my friends, said, were essentially workaday midfielders, tolerable only insofar as they enabled his Cantonesque interpretive literary genius. We obviously do not go that far. There will be no spray painted graffiti on the history section of the LRB bookshop tonight. But we hope that the Good of the novel shows what happens if we purposefully estrange criticism from history. What happens when critics come into direct contact with the novelists of a novel and explain how it works, where it is good, or perhaps not good, and if it is any good, show what kind of good it is? But surely, you may retort, this is belletristic nonsense. No one can venerate technique like this and dismiss character, psychology, race, economics, empire, and so on. All the noisy public conflicts and creative cultural chaos that make the novel the great social genre that real people, not critics, read week after week. Yeats said the poet is not the bundle of accidents that sits down to breakfast each day. But surely the novelist sometimes skips breakfast, forgets car keys, worries about drinking, debt, breakups and breakdowns, and then writes about all that mess, all that noise. In short, the novel is always in society, and any attempt to insulate and extract the genre from history to promote an invaluable approach <coughs> technique is, surely, a scandalous act of critical evasion, inadequate, incompetent, insufficient. Our answer to this is not emphatic. There is some truth in it. This is one book. It tries to show, not tell. It does not inaugurate any program. Each week, as an academic editor, I commission weighty scholarly books that are historical, political, comparative, unevaluative. These books contain lots of densely verified and very valuable scholarly information. The good of the novel responds to the way people read and feel passion and love for individual novels. This is the kind of criticism I enjoy reading from writers with a distinctive voice. And anyone reading, for example, Andrew O'Hagan on DeLillo and 9-11, or Robert McFarland on Hollinghurst and Thatcherism will, I hope, see that it's possible to be attentive to form language and style, and still confront the realities of history, politics, and violence. Our introduction ends on what I hope is that modest but clear note. Each novel sets the terms of its own reception, makes its own demands of its readers. Each novel writes its own constitution. The novel has a history, a tradition, a generic profile. It has characteristic procedures and protocols. It has distinctive faculties and virtues. One can say for one thing, that the truth of fiction cannot be rendered in any other form. It cannot be abstracted or codified, turned into a thesis or proposition. Novelistic truth is not data, not reported, not documentary, not philosophical tenet, not political slogan. Questions as to what the novel does and what kinds of truth the novel tells are best answered in practice. And this is what The Good of the Novel aims to do, by bringing some of the strongest critics of the present moment into contact with some of the finest novels of the past three decades. How good are these novels? What kind of good are they? What did these novels achieve that couldn't be achieved in any other genre? These are the questions we aim to address in The Good of the Novel. And these are the questions which I hope our distinguished panel of novel producers, publishers, anthologists, reviewers, advocates, and critics, will speak on without hesitation, repetition, or deviation, which makes me, I guess, kind of Nicholas Parsons, but with less wit or literary flair.